Welcome to episode 393 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, producer, and the man who's incredibly sorry that the show is running a little late this week. As I mentioned on last week's show, I ended up traveling on November 1st, and I'm actually away from home base right now. I'm recording this evening of November 2nd. Strike that. I'm sorry. Yesterday was October 32nd. Today is October 33rd. And I am recording from, well, an undisclosed location. Which means I don't have everything with me. I'm actually recording this on my Zoom portable recorder instead of my home studio. Hopefully it's going to work out okay. I don't have all of my assets, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you now that there are going to be spoilers when I talk about the movie the Beach Girls, and The Monster with my friend, Karen Joan Kahodek. There are spoilers. Heads up, you've been warned. I don't have the little bit where the Count comes in and warns you about spoilers, so I'm telling you now. You might even say there's a spoiler or two during Kenny's famous Monster of Filmland segment as well, where he talks about how this film was represented in the magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland, or specifically Monster World, but he'll talk to you about that here later on in the show. We're also going to talk about Karen's novel, The Jack-O-Lantern Box. Trust me, it's a good one. Now, because I was traveling, we had to record the feedback section a little differently as well, and that you're going to hear at the end of the show. It's a shorter segment than normal, but Brenda did join me to record the feedback, so you're going to get that in this episode as well. And of course, we'll end the show with the music that you're hearing now. It's the song More Fumes from the band The Undead Bureaucrats. They are a surf band based out of Ottawa, Ontario. It's off their album Expedition Earth that came out last month. They gave us permission to play the music here on the show. I think you're going to dig it, and I hope you dig the rest of this episode, which we're going to get to right after this. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Derry Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Hotsey, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's, it's amazing. 
You will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Stop! Steady now. Don't let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Oh, Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh! oh. oh what's this? I... It's full of hooks. I... Oh, they're tearing into me. I... What are you looking for under a tombstone in broad daylight? Shh! You'll scare her away. Scare her away? Who? What? Well, what? What can you scare away here in a cemetery? My ghoul friend. She's the ghost in the invisible bikini. <coughs> what are you putting me on? Herbie, I know you're broad-minded, but this is ridiculous. No, I'm serious. And you should see her since she traded her bedsheet for a bikini. Boy, you must enjoy looking around for a real nothing broad. It's really just that American International is inviting everyone out to the graveyard for a blood-curdling blast with the ghost in the invisible bikini to see Tommy Kirk, Deborah Wally, Aaron Kincaid, Harvey Lembeck and Jesse White with Nancy Sinatra and guest stars Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff and Susan Hart in the ghost in the invisible bikini in Path A color and Panavision. Now, you would have to get commercial. Now you scared her away. Ooh. <laughs> Hello, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with another look at our movie for today in Famous Monsters. The movie, the not-so-classic Beach Girls and the Monster, was featured in a short two-page article in Monster World number 10. Now, last week we looked at Monster World, a sister magazine of Famous Monsters, basically a copy which was placed into the Famous Monster numbering. Monster World 1 through 10 became Famous Monsters 70 through 79. So we're looking at Monster World number 10, which was actually became Famous Monsters number 79. And that was uh, released in September of 1966. The first page featured the producer's concept drawing of the monster with the caption, if you are scared to death, it will surf you right. The second page has two photos and this description. Remember the monster of Piedras Blancas? The Flesh Eaters? The Drawling Terror? That was the Texas version of the Crawling Terror. Now, in the tradition of horror of Party Beach comes the Surf Terror. Originally titled The Invisible Monster, this comes to the screen with John Hall, once seen in The Invisible Man's Revenge. In this picture, John is very visible. His victims are 
divisible, pronounced divisible. They visibly die like flies because John kills them and not with kindness. He's a nice guy in part of the time, but for reasons you'll discover when you see the picture, he goes out of his mind every now and then. And when he does, someone goes out of this world permanently. John Hall is an oceanographer named Otto who is having a lot of strife with his wife. This causes him to act pretty peculiar, like crazy Otto at first. He plans just to scare a few people, but then, whoops, we promise not to reveal too much of the plot. However, we can show you something exclusive, the producer's own concept of the demon from the ocean depths. Hey, that sounds like a hot horror title, The Demon from the Ocean Steps. There's a rock and growl musical number in the pick called Monster from the Surf. And as was done, if we remember correctly, in I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and War of the Colossal Beast, there is a brief sequence in color. But to see the color sequence, you'll have to catch the theatrical showing of the film, which is known as Beach Girls and the Monster. On TV, it'll be Surf Terror. What is the mystery of the sea? As Davy Jones said to the seasick sea serpent, it's too deep for me. If you like surfing, singing, and signature doings with a lurking monster to look at, make no error. Surf terror will give you that from the sweet foam feeling. Other classics featured in Monster World number 10 include Hammer Films, The Reptile, who had a picture on the cover, and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, the Batman TV series, and an article about Lon Chaney Sr. Just like Monster Kid Radio, FM covered the classic and not so classic, like this cheese fest, Beach Girls, and the Monster. Monster Kid Radio listeners, the way I normally find people to ask to be on the show is, you know, they'll mention a movie or, or they're on a podcast and they talk about a movie or they write about a particular movie. The person that I have on the show this week is somebody that I met online through Facebook because she's a fellow Robert E. Howard fan, which, wow, that's I mean, you know, I talk about Robert E. Howard here on the show quite a bit. And it turns out she's an award winner. She won the, what was it, the Harkonnen Award uh, this, this year, year? I won the Sumerian. No, the Sumerian. Sumerian this year. The Sumerian, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. For your essay, Queen by Fire and Steel and Slaughter, Paulette's Hymn, which was published on the on an Underwood number 5 blog. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that. The writer of that, the guest this week, the person you just heard is Karen Joan Kohodek. Karen, how's it going? Pretty good. My uh, cat's making a little noise here, but I think that'll be fine. He has a lot to say about classic horror as well. <laughs> We're very cat-friendly here. My cat Wednesday <laughs> may end up piping in here in a little bit, so totally understand and totally acceptable. So like I said, I, I found Karen because I saw that she won this award, and it's like, I wonder if she's on Facebook, because that's awesome. And she was, and I reached out, and we became Facebook friends. And then the other day, she mentions a monster movie that I personally love, but not a lot of people do, the Beach Girls and the Monster, and I knew I had to have her on the show. Yes, it's actually a movie. I know how I heard of it, and I vividly remember the first time I saw it, and I did want to give a quick shout-out. Yeah. I heard about it thanks to Tim Lucas's late lamented video watchdog magazine. Oh, okay, okay. Which was a huge kind of uh, source for me for many years, and it's finally defunct. I believe he retired, which is kind of sad. And yeah. there's amazing scholarship in it, so I'm really hoping that some it doesn't get lost over time. 
you know, as mag- print magazines, once they go out of print, it, they kind of sometimes lose their luster. But it was a very good magazine. And I read a review of it, and I was like, this is a crazy, crazy sounding movie, and I have to see it. And I ended up uh, visiting my parents, and I took some videotapes that I had taped off of late night kind of AMC, TCM, when they were doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I watched it on a double feature with White Zombie. Oh, wow. So I did <laughs> I did Beach Girls and the Monster and then White Zombie, and I'd never seen either of them before. And it was a great way to watch both of them. I was like, these movies have nothing in common. <laughs> so that's, that's quite a, a different double feature, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I was like, this is what's so great about about horror movies, because even within a older kind of classic genre, you know, they're about 30, you know, they're in different decades, but still, there's such variety. Mm-hmm. There's so many different types of horror movies and so many different styles and just different ways to be crazy. And I think that's one of the great things about it. So definitely. Um White zombie, and then this one. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I want to talk about that movie and, and what it means to you and that sort of thing. But there's something that we do here on the show with everybody. And I know you said you've listened to some episodes. I don't know if you've ever heard us play around with the Classic Five, but I have. Excellent. Well, I have my deck of cards here. And for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a card game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a question about monster movies this or that, which one do you prefer, that kind of thing. There are no wrong answers. And I know I just called it a game, but really, it's a conversation starter. Karen, are you ready to play the Classic Five? Yes. All right, here we go. Card number one right off the top. Who else, in your opinion, should have or could have played a werewolf? Oh, jeez. Could have or should have played a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I knew you were going to pull a really tough one on me. Um, <laughs> actually, okay, actually, no, no. This is kind of, yeah, I'm going to go with Aquanetta. <laughs> Ooh, um, okay. Bonus points for Karen right here. That's awesome. I feel like, you know, she never really had the career she should have. I've only seen the uh, Captive Wild Women and whatever the sequel is. I'm drawing a blank on the name. Like, I really thought the camera loved her. And I just read a thing recently that she was supposed to be in one of the mummy movies as one of the mummies but that Mm. she had to back out of it. And so I was like, I bet she'd been a great werewolf, too. And it's kind of, she was kind of typecasting because, you know, she's the one who turns into a gorilla. She could turn into a wolf. She probably could have had a lot more range than that. But just because of that, I'm, I'm going to go with Aquaman. So listeners, for those of you keeping score at home, Karen is slowly making her way to the top of my list of favorite guests to have on Monster Kid Radio. She loves Robert E. Howard, and she just name-dropped Captive Wild Woman, and Jungle Woman is the other one, um, just casually in the conversation. Those movies don't get enough attention and respect, so awesome. So cool. All right, card number two. Which do you prefer, The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits? I have to say Twilight Zone. I have not yeah. seen enough Outer Limits. The episodes I've seen have been good, but I just I totally grew up with The Twilight Zone. I've seen many of them many times, and so The Outer Limits is more something I still need to learn more about. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Card number three. What is your favorite mummy movie? Oh, I was actually thinking about this. Well, the Aquanetta thing came up because of this. And I believe it is The Mummy's Ghost. It's the one that's set in what's kind of like Louisiana. I don't know if they say that. (laughs) But they keep talking about the swamps and there's some, like, Cajun Mm -hmm. accents. And it's 
the the mummy in that one is the woman who played Mrs. Olsen in the Folgers commercials, only she's young and glamorous, and it's very <laughs> bizarre. So I don't even remember why I ever saw that movie, but it's, yeah. And I I want to say it's The Mummy's Ghost, a sequel to The Mummy's Curse, but I'm afraid I might be flipping this. <laughs> I always get them mixed up because there's Curse, Ghost, Hand, and Tomb, I believe, right? Right. The Mummy titles yeah. are not very distinctive. Yet. And they came one out one right after the other, so there was no break in between either. One, two of them came out in the same year, so it's got to you know, keep them straight. But okay. No, there is one that takes place like in the swampy area, that sort of thing. Yes, that is that is my favorite. I mean, I have a... I have a whole New Orleans thing, too, which I've, I have many weird sidelines. Right on. Okay, card number four. They met Frankenstein, Dracula, the Invisible Man, a mummy. What other monsters should Abbott and Costello have met in the movies? Oh, oh, boy. They did meet the creature? They did on TV for a second, yeah, but it wasn't really a film. Just for, it was like a promo thing. Okay, yeah, because I, I would have liked to have seen them interact more with the creature. I think the creature, yeah, the creature is another of it. Is kind of limited to those few movies and could have expanded a whole lot more. Sure. All right. Card number five, final card. What classic monster movie needs a prequel? Needs a prequel. I'm going to say Cat People. I've got a cat. I've got a real animal theme here. Maybe it's. (laughs) But yeah. I think that's come up before. That's awesome. Yeah. I would love to know, like, Marina's background. Yeah. You know, like one of those smoky werewolf villages, but explaining more about the origins of the cat people before they came to America. I'd sure. Like to see that. No, that'd be great. That'd be fun. Well, I know the classic five only has five cards, five questions, but I'm going to ask a sixth because you know Howard, and I want to ask you, <laughs> oh, yeah. there hasn't been very many, a few films, a few TV shows, some radio stuff. What's your favorite Howard adaptation? I'm going to have to go with the original Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. I know that it's very not true to the texts, and this is kind of one of those things that comes up a lot. Some people really hate it because of that, but the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is the reason that I became a Howard fan. I mean, that was the place I really first encountered Conan, and then by extension, Robert E. Howard. So, and I do love it. It's campy and goofy, and I, I really like it a lot. So I have to go with that. What's yours? What's mine? I love that film, not because of the story or anything, but I feel like the setting, the world is very representative of what Howard was writing about. I agree with that. I really like the environment and just the aesthetic. Yeah, the Conan character probably doesn't you very close (laughs) to what Howard was writing, but the world itself felt real. I do like that one. I did just watch the thriller episode of Pigeons from Hell. Oh, And I really adore that. I really like that. That is a fantastic episode of TV. There should have been a Pigeons of Hell movie in that time period. But, oh, oh, man, that, you know. Oh, we can't. Where's our time machine? <laughs> Tell people to do these things. Let's do it now. I'll start the Kickstarter <laughs> campaign to raise funds. We know oh, plenty what? of writers who can write it for us. You know, <laughs> I know a couple directors, you know. There we go. <laughs> I have contacts with those Swedish guys. Dave, there you go. The people who own the rights. There you go. No, I, I love Pigeons from Hell. It's one of my favorite stories. I would love to see an, an adaptation of The Black Stone, though. That's the one I'm oh, waiting for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would that would be really interesting. I would I would be happy to see that. Yeah. yeah. So welcome to the Robert E. Howard Kid Podcast. No, just... Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, Howard Kid. I like that. Yeah, Howard Kid. There you go. There you go. A barbarian Kid Podcast. Oh, Something yeah. like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think the Chromecast has that field covered do. pretty well. Uh, and they're great, too. Anyway, oh, so are, that yeah. was the classic five plus one. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And baby, dance, come and dance with me. Hear the beat of the mountain sea. Ride, baby, ride, come and ride with me. Let your feet go easy. What do you make of this? Where does the other end go? It dumps into the ocean. It looks exactly like the South American Fantigua fish. I hope you can take one alive, Sheriff. I still believe that a human clawed that girl to death. The Beach Girls and the Monster, starring John Hall, Sue Casey, and the glamorous Watusi dancing girls from Hollywood's famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Music by Frank Sinatra, Jr. You got a monster in the turf. Jinx, do you have a problem? You won't have after you meet the monster on the beach. If you see this ghoul, play it cool. Beauties in bikinis, laughing, singing, surfing, sinning. Beach party lovers making hey hey in the moonlight while the monster waits and watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one will kill you. We're talking about here the beach girls and the monster and... I've said it before on the show, and, and I'm going to say it again. There is just something about surf music and monsters that goes oh so well together. I don't know why it works, but it works. Okay, that was actually one of my big things I wanted to, to ask you is I don't know a lot about surf okay. music in general, and I know you're an aficionado, so mm-hmm. I, I would like you to tell me your thoughts about the surf music in Beach Girls and the Monster, because I love it, but I know nothing about surf music. So, Well, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there are, I've had people who are more in it than I am when it comes to surf music, you know, try to break it down and explain to me why surf music is so synonymous with especially 50s and 60s monster movies. I still don't get it myself. I don't know what the connection is or why it works so well. I just love it. The music in this film... It's fun. It, it it's it's not you know the Del Airs and the Zombie Stump. You know by by no means, it's Frank Sinatra, Jr. So it's a little different. Okay. Um, I think okay. the music is adequate, but I probably don't need to hear those songs anymore because they keep playing the same songs over and over again. The Dance Baby Dance song I don't need to hear ever again. That is actually something that totally cracks me up about this movie. There's a point where someone says, like, oh, and this is that, that new music, that new song. That I'm like, yeah, it is the new song. Everybody's playing it because <laughs> it appears over <laughs> and over and over again. But it's sort of by the end of the movie, I'm sort of, I've grown fond of it. But, yeah. Yeah. But it is. It is. It, it is. And, and I'm sorry, listeners, because by the time you hear this in this episode, you've already heard the trailer for the film, and it's right there in the trailer. So you've heard it too, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. So they so they will know what we're talking about, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I do kind of appreciate the the other song, though, with uh, the lion puppet, Kingsley the Lion. And oh. It's just something goofy and charming about that. It doesn't feel like it fits this film at all. But it's just so goofy and, and fun. It feels very Mickey Mouse Club to me, <laughs> which is not the vibe you're going for in a monster movie. But 
So, yes, I have a few factoids about oh, that. Oh, do you? Okay. Um, actually, that are you, I don't know if you, you knew this, but Walker Edmonston, okay. Edmonston, who plays the sculptor friend, the, the lead guy's best friend, he was apparently a TV children's show host, and so he, he made that lion was one of his puppets, and he co-wrote the song. Okay. And apparently the lead actor wrote his little love ballad song too so that's that makes me feel there's sort of diy quality that that i enjoy about that however i did look up that old video watchdog uh, review <laughs> and they call that song astonishingly insensitive <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you know just a scene a scene earlier the girl who sings it you know two scenes earlier was like almost legitimately broken up about the death of her friend more so than you sometimes see in these movies where they actually are are shocked and upset and there's repercussions. They talk about the girl's parents and all this stuff, but then, yep, there they are like joking around on the beach about the monster <laughs> and do this goofy song. And you're like, yeah, this is really astonishingly. <laughs> it truly <laughs> is. And when you mentioned this on Facebook, I'm like, okay, somebody can finally talk about this movie with me. I haven't actually sat down to watch this movie start to finish, you know, as a dedicated kind of viewer in a while. And I had forgotten just how, blatant this song talks about the victims of this monster it's like come on guys it's it's such an odd note <laughs> oh it is but yeah there's there's something yeah you don't really i when i've seen it i didn't really know what was going to happen and i really appreciated that it pulls up some weird stuff that just comes out of nowhere. And then, you know, even when they just stop to watch surf footage you know <laughs> that's not narratively great maybe it's not maybe very narratively effective but it's fun yeah and it just gives you that kind of sense of this is kind of one of those anything goes movies yes in a way mm -hmm. uh, while i did kind of forget about how insensitive that song is one person i did not forget in this movie one thing about this movie i didn't forget at all was the director slash actor slash director of photography john hall who did a lot of stuff. I mean, he had one heck of a career, including some movies that are relevant to Monster Kid Radio, like Cult of the Cobra, a couple of the Invisible Man films. This was the last film he acted in. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he huh. would, um, yeah, I don't know why, <laughs> what happened there, what, what happened in his life <laughs> that led him to being involved in this film, and then the next year direct one more movie, the only other film he directed, which was The Navy versus The Night Monsters. I, I, he was involved in that somehow, and I don't know how that happened, what that journey was to get from working for Universal in the 40s to this. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really <laughs> good question. So if any listeners have any ideas or thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. Because I, I love him in The Invisible Agent. I love that movie a lot. But that's clearly better, you know, a more prestige picture than oh, yeah. The Beach Girls and the Monster. Anyway. Yeah. He's really only the big name of note here, too. I think most of the cast, I guess there's the children's host guy. But I, I don't really know if much more of the cast yeah. kind of stood out to me. Uh, a lot of them, there are a lot of people who have lengthy credits but they're not people you've ever heard right. of. so like uh is it sue casey who plays the wife the vampy second wife she's got an imd page that goes on for miles i mean she was just guest starred in every tv show ever made i mean so she clearly had a long working career but she never became someone that people really heard of you know never made that leap to a familiar name sure sure 
And I feel like a lot of the people in this movie, there are a few of them that they did a couple of movies in the 60s and were never heard of again. And then there are also a handful, the the TV show host, he had a, also had a whole series of appearing on all the cop shows in the 70s and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, none of there isn't that thing where you see it. And you're like, oh, there's that one actor that I recognize from this other thing. <laughs> but they're not bad. I mean, I've certainly seen worse in this kind of film. So they're perfectly serviceable. Sure, that's one's damn good favorite. <laughs> one of the co-writers on this, one of the people that worked on this film, is Robert Siliphant, and uh, he also wrote The Creeping Terror. So yeah, we've seen worse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I haven't seen that in years. Uh, I may have to revisit that. I try to be pretty positive here on the show about every movie that we talk about, but uh, <laughs> a couple of my dear friends really want to talk about The Creeping Tear with me, and I'm I'm struggling so <laughs> on that one. But you mentioned Sue Casey. I really liked her in this film. Yeah. I love that kind of delightfully gold diggerish kind of persona that she's got. There's just something... I mean, she's a bad person, sure, but there's just something kind of delightful about watching her be this wicked stepmother type. Yes. And yeah, she really livens up the film. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a way they kind of give her a scene where she kind of, they don't really justify her behavior, but they do show that, you know, she is legitimately unhappily married and that her husband isn't the catch that she thought that he was. And all of these things, they do actually have a scene where they, they talk about this where she's like, you know, we've been married for five years and nothing's gotten any better. Sure. And you're kind of like, well, she should just leave him and not torture him. But you know, it was the time. <laughs> True. True. So I, so we can do, we can do spoilers. Here. Yes, we can. I do need to talk about the creature. Yeah, we have to talk about and, the creature. Uh, yes, we have to talk about the creature. I love it. I think it's great. When I think about this movie, so my, and especially, you know, every time I rewatch it, I'm always kind of surprised that it it sort of has some thematic interest to me in the the 60s time period, that it was filmed in 1964, Mm -hmm. wasn't released until 65, but that at that time, it's depicting that very innocent, wholesome 1960s. It's all American, beach fun. It's almost like a Disney movie, except for the murders, you know? So if the creature was just... (laughs) scaring people instead of killing them. I could have seen this on a Saturday matinee sure, easily. Sure. It's very wholesome. The youth culture element is there, but it's a very innocent youth culture. So it was sort of predating the troubling youth culture of the 60s with the anti-war movement and the drug culture and all of this societal upheaval. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that generation gap theme is so strongly prevalent in it. So it's almost as if it's showing that the generation gap between the older generation that lived through the Depression and World War II and sort of built this materially prosperous America is at odds with the people that they they did it for. You know, they wanted to do this for their kids. They created this world for their kids, but then the kids have all this freedom, they have this leisure time, they have all these options, and then the older generation is sort of murderously resentful of their freedom. And I just thought that was really interesting because it's not something I would expect to see in a film like this. And I feel like that comes out really strongly with the character of the father that John Hall plays. So there you go. That's my... No, and especially in the scene where he's... <laughs> my mini English... Uh... 
uh, especially in the scene. Take the girl out of the English class. Oh, no, no, not at all. No, and, and I think maybe we're giving this movie more depth than anybody ever has before because of what it is. But I think you're absolutely right. And it's really demonstrated in the scene in the car where there, there's three people in the car. There's the son, the father, and Mark. And the father starts laying into the son about, you know, you've missed so much time at the lab. And the son doesn't want to talk in front of Mark, but Mark gets out of the car and they have that conversation about how, you know, I've been working so hard. All I want to do is play. And, and there's this real demonstration of what you're talking about right here in that scene. And it really kind of shows what the divide is between the generations, between father and son, uh, the different uh, attitudes toward working hard and having what you want and living for the versus living for the day and just doing your thing and enjoying life. It's that's really interesting actually. And I think this movie uses a giant rubber monster or maybe not giant, but a rubber monster (laughs) to kind of drive that point home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My favorite part in the movie is when it's shortly, I think after, I think it's a scene after that where the father tells Vicky, he's like, oh, I just found out, you know, I had this conversation with my son and he prefers a life of play to work. And she says, well, who doesn't? Right. (laughs) And it's like, well, who doesn't? They know that these people have more opportunity to be able to do that. Of course they want to do that. Mm -hmm. But then he's looking at it as like, well, I sacrificed to give you all of these, he thinks those opportunities should be to do, to lead the life that his father wanted him to lead. Mm -hmm. And that's just an elemental conflict. That's just not that easy. And of course, speaking of the monster, I love the fact that it uses its limitations to its advantage in the fact that, you know, you see the monster and you're like, well, that's a goofy looking sea monster as so many of them are. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's a really fakey looking sea monster. And then it legitimately is a fake easy. <laughs> right. So it, it actually like rates its limitation into the plot and kind of creates a little more of a drama out of it instead of it just being, it's a monster, it kills some people, the monster is caught, which is kind of the lowest bar that a movie like this could do. Mm-hmm. And it probably would have still been fun and I probably still would enjoy it. But I feel that it, it does go in its own goofy way, a little bit of an extra level and actually telling a human drama about characters. Mm -hmm. Which, again... (laughs) And I also love the design of the monster. Oh, I love the monster design, too. I mean, my favorite film of all time is Creature from the Black Lagoon. You give me a monster that goes underwater... Let me know he's probably green. And, you know, he swims around. and You know, I just love that stuff. I adore it. And this monster is so iconic, despite the film he's in and, and probably not getting nearly as much screen time as some of the other underwater monster movies had. It's an iconic looking beast. And I'd love to have like a little statue of it on my desk, you know, or an action figure to, you know, because that's just amazing. I love the look of it. And it's somewhat articulated. Its eyes actually move in one scene. Which is going above and beyond a lot of <laughs> uh, what a lot of these monsters did. When it's attacking, they also do some photography so that it actually does look menacing. Like when the, the arm and the claw, mm-hmm. you don't see the whole monster at the time. You know, you do see the monster lumbering along, but in some of the attack scenes, that claw is kind of ge- legitimately scary looking. Mm-hmm. And it claws at their face. You know, so, yeah, I, I feel like. It is, again, more effective than it has almost any right to be. <laughs> yeah. There's also, a, you know, the great thing about the father being this fish expert, and which, of course, probably inspired him. But they have this whole conversation about, well, we, you know, we don't 
know any fish that have like footprints. Like, they're looking at these claw marks and you know <laughs> footprints in the sand, and they they don't know of any fish that. I'm like, no fish have claw feet walking on. This. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I love the design of it, and you're right; they do work it into you know the story itself, which makes it it sells it even more. The the father being the killer, it's it's kind of Scooby Dooey in that it's really not a monster; yeah. it's not supernatural. It's just some guy in, in a mask um, or a suit in this case, but it's still a satisfying monster and a satisfying conclusion i feel like where it's revealed that it is the dad but it's not just we handcuff him and take him away there's also a chase scene at the end as well well while he's wearing most of the suit which is just fantastic (laughs) and the uh throughout the movie he does have moments where he does seem just slightly unstable Mm -hmm. but it's it's made reasonable by the fact especially since he's so upset with you know he's fighting with his wife and he has all this stuff going on so you don't i'm when i first saw it i really didn't expect it to be him but when it was him they had laid enough of a groundwork that you're like oh sure he really was unhinged so you know i'm I'm making a real case that this is this is (laughs) This is a seriously under uh, underestimated film, which largely I do think is just fun because of the music and the monster and the dancing girl. Well, and oh, see, that's that's one of the things though about a lot of these <laughs> movies though is that we can enjoy them on on a few different levels. And yeah, it's a fun little low budget yeah. monster romp, and there's a lot of shots of girls in bikinis. There's a lot of it. Uh, they they even kind of poke fun at it a little bit in one of the campfire scenes with the guy with the googly glasses staring over and looking at one girl's chest and the eyes fall out and there's a sound effect and he looks at the person next to him and the same thing happens again. I mean, they really do (laughs) exploit it as much as they can for 1965. But it's it's more than just that, too. If you want to, you can kind of take a step back. And like you said, it's really a battle of the generations. And, you know, just talking with you about it, I'm thinking, okay, somebody could remake this with millennials being, the, (laughs) you know, uh, potentially. And, yeah, Yeah. I mean, it really... Honestly, not that I'm pro yeah. remake, but you know, no, well, sometimes, but yeah, and that that's true. That is, yeah, well, I think one of the real joys of you know even the kind of cheesy B movies is some of them are you know just pretty bad, but a, a lot more of them actually are saying something mm-hmm. in their own in their own unique ways, in their own kind of oddly imaginative ways, and I feel like this is an oddly imaginative film. That it, it does have these touches and moments. And yeah, I'd like that campfire scene. There is a lot of sort of goofy humor that is actually fairly effective again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And maybe yeah. that's what drew John Hall to the project. I don't, who knows? I, I would love to know more about how he got involved with it. But you would have to have somebody who is older to play that father character and, and to be able to demonstrate the, the slippage between reality and maybe having that break. Potentially, they, they never flat out say, yeah, he went crazy, put on a suit and started killing people. But it does get questioned quite a bit. What do you think? Do you think he did slip or was it all conscious that he decided to do it? It's such a fine line. It's really the one just shades into the other. So I'm, I'm not really sure what I think about that. But in a way, I mean, there was a, had to have been a lot of premeditation to this. I mean, there was a lot of planning and setup that went into this. But at the same time, 
yeah, like he just did kind of snap, but went about it in a very methodical, rational kind of way to actually get away with it as much as he did and plan it as well as he did. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's clearly also like, you know, where people are at different times and who's around and there is a, a lot of thought process behind the mayhem. I guess he would have to have spent time making the suits. <laughs> That's not just something you have in the back of the closet, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you'd almost think that that would have been a, a reason why the sculptor friend would have been even more of a red herring because he was an artist and, you know, he could have knocked together a, a monster suit probably easier. But You said you remember the first time you saw this. When you first saw it, did you think it was Mark? I think I thought to the end that it was. Okay. I guess when they found the suit at that point, I probably did think it was Mark. I mean, I think I that would have been kind of the obvious thing. So I I didn't, and I, especially that it being the sort of establishment figure seems a little bit subversive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I expected it to go in that direction. And so I was kind of glad that it did. That it, it had, I think it added that extra depth, whereas if it had just been you know, one of the kids or, you know, the crazy beatnik or whoever, it would have been kind of more, oh, okay, it's just kind of a regular film. But I think that does give it to an extra level. And I don't think I really expected that, especially from a film, a fairly straight film in the early 60s, that they would go that route and have the sort of the mouthpiece for the establishment turn out to be the psychotic killer. So that was a pleasant surprise. When I first saw it, I remember being surprised to find out it was the dad in a costume. I really did not expect that. It really came out of the blue for me. Yeah. So I guess the movie was effective. You know, they did what they were trying to do, and they, they, they tricked us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those pesky kids. <laughs> yeah, there is a Scooby-Doo quality about it. There I, is. I, I do agree, yes. But there's nothing wrong with that. I, I feel like that's just fine. It, it, Scooby-Doo's been around for how long, and it's still going. So, I mean, there's something to be said for that formula. I just love the vision, the the image of John Hall wearing that costume, save for the hands and the headpiece, driving down the street, <laughs> driving away at night. There's just something about that <laughs> that I just adore, that whole sequence. I just love looking at him driving as the monster. It, it's also very odd in his, you know, very at the time modern house, too. You know, they're in kind of the, the bar and the family room there and they're at the time, very contemporary house, and Mark is wrestling with the creature. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, it's a, it's a strange juxtaposition, definitely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like to try to do when we talk about movies here on the show is I, I like to go look at the old uh, like press kits and things like that. There was a small press book put together for this film. Not a lot in terms of suggestions to promote the movie, just little articles that you're supposed to submit to, submit to your local newspaper to get them to run about you know, Frank Sinatra's music or John Hall being in the film, as well as like a production list of cast and crew, that sort of thing. I would love to have heard some of these things. So it does look like that at one point there were actual TV trailers sent out uh-huh. and I would love to see that or a radio ad sent out. And I would love to hear what the radio ad sounded like for this film because <laughs> the yeah. dialogue, the, the script that is showing here, um, I'm trying to imagine somebody in that 1965 surf movie voice. The whole gang is on its way to see Beach Girls and the Monsters. You know, just I want to, 
yeah, yeah, hip chicks are shaking in the knees because there's a monster on the beach. So cats, if you see this ghost, play it cool. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And it wouldn't be a, an odd movie to promote because it is this kind of surf romp mm-hmm. with the dance, baby dance. But then, oh, and then they have that kind of monster music that kind of follows the monster around. Which yeah, I love. it's an odd film. Yeah, it's an I odd film, but love. I just feel like the commercials would have been very odd as well. Yeah, and I wonder which way they would have gone. Would they have sold it as a monster movie, or would they have sold it as a surf movie? Because there is a lot of surf stock footage in this thing. Yes, yes. Almost too much. Almost too much. I feel like yeah, but then I, I wasn't you know in that surf culture, so I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? I think there's maybe a little too much surf footage but and of course you you know that the surf footage was filmed by an actor who appears in the movie so again it's got that kind of like homespun quality handcrafted mm-hmm. and let me see what was his name uh dale davis who apparently was a big surf filmmaker mm-hmm. uh second only to the the endless summer guys according to a handful of sources on the internet oh, wow. but he appears as the i believe he's the the last victim there in the beach when tom finds him Okay. At towards the end of the movie, so he's one of the one of the, the surf gang. Okay. And he supplied the surf footage that they watch, but it is yeah they just the whole movie comes to a halt while they just watch surf footage for I don't know seems like about ten minutes. Right. And they're like, wow. <laughs> he's like, I can't wait to show my girlfriend this. She'll it'll blow her mind. And you're like, okay. <laughs> like okay. And it's not entirely clear. If uh, Richard actually surfs, I mean, I assume he does, but we never really see him surfing. He just is hanging around the beach and swimming in the pool with his girlfriend. Like he, I always feel like he's just kind of hanging around with the surfers. But I don't remember if the movie actually establishes that or not. That he actually does surf himself, or if he's just an aficionado. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. I guess I'll have to go back and rewatch it. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> I did read uh, in a few different places that a lot of the surf footage was actually in color in the film. I heard that as well. So you've got this black and white monster movie going and then goes straight to color for that and then back again, which would have, I think, felt really odd to me <laughs> if I was watching it and didn't know that yeah. was coming. Like the, That's an odd gimmick choice. Yes. I, I, I think that, it, yeah, quite possibly, but but maybe if the surf stuff was a big draw at the time, it's hard to kind of put myself into that frame of mind. But yeah, it was the time that it was. So yeah, and then that's one of the things that sometimes I struggle with when it comes to a lot of these classic films, whether it's horror or not. Is that having not been in that culture at that time, I may not get all the in jokes or all the intentions. Uh, but then I love to go back and try to investigate that, and then try to educate myself and become more aware of it. I love my surf music. I love my instrumental surf music a lot. I know very little about the surf culture. <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't, yeah, I don't know what to say there, you know. <laughs> so we've talked about the monster. We've talked about the music a little bit. And, and the th- I love the idea that it's a generational thing. Oh, is there anything else about the movie that you could say you think to maybe get people to give it another chance or, or watch it in the first place? It's a surprisingly fun movie. I've seen, you know, various movies that are not exactly in the surf horror genre, but kind of that comedic youth culture, you know, like The Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. Right. Things like that, which are which are fine movies. Mm-hmm. But I don't re I haven't wanted to revisit them as much as I 
do the Beach Girls and the Monster. I mean, I've probably seen this movie at least four times, which is kind of excessive. Um, I've certainly <laughs> seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of dumber movies more times, so it's not entirely crazy. But there are a lot of these movies that are kind of trying to hit a little bit of horror, a little bit of comedy, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, you know, they're fun, and I've enjoyed them, but I, I didn't feel they had quite as much to offer. And whereas this one, I feel did. And the other thing about it, every time I've seen it, I forget that it's in black and white. Hmm. I always think it's going to be in color. And I, when I just rewatched it, it happened again. So I feel like it really feels like a color film. It really feels like it's got this energy and kind of fun to it. Interesting. You know, monster killings. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. So <laughs> It's got it all. It's got energy. It's got music and monsters killing people. And monster killing. <laughs> Evil claws and, and generational angst. Yeah. No, but I... <laughs> I feel like it, yeah, it wears better than some of the other films of its time kind of come off a little, you know, in the end, they're a little bit gimmicky. Sure. But this one, I never feel that way about. I, I love it. Uh, it's it's a fun film. And yeah, some of the surf stuff does slow down for me, slow it down a little bit for me. But the movie's pretty short as it is. It's barely over an hour long. Oh, yeah. So it's not really a huge investment of time. And it is fun. And it doesn't slow down at all. As much as I love things like horror at Party Beach, and I do love horror at Party Beach, I feel like there's a few spots in there where it does slow down a little bit. Whereas with this one, it never really seems to drag. I mean, even when we've got Mark kind of freaking out over the sculpture he's working on of Vicky, it's, it's still an engaging scene. It's not boring i mean never did i feel bored watching the movie even during the surf stuff oh yeah and he had done a sculpture of the dead girl he'd sculpted her as a topless mermaid and they have this whole conversation about i'm sure her parents would love this sculpture and i'm like well maybe but I mean, she's a topless mermaid was she topless when she posed sorry i'm gonna be a little pg-13 here but it's very odd so there's a wow yeah yeah mark the sculptor is an odd red herring <laughs> sorry i just had to throw that in there. I'm like, what the heck? Yeah. What was going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, for, it is a very short film, and there is a lot of oddity in it. So I guess it has that in its favor. You know, and they could have flushed it out a little bit more. They could have talked more about Mark's accident. But I do appreciate that they they don't get too bogged down in stuff that doesn't really matter too much. Yeah. You know, we, we know enough about Mark and, and his relationship with everybody and why he's there. And we just know enough to enjoy the movie and have a good time. So I take it back. I don't want to remake this movie. Just watch <laughs> this one again. Yes. Yes. Great idea. So that is The Beach Girls and the Monster. It's been released under a couple of different titles, but I think you can find it usually as Beach Girls and the Monster. I believe it's on DVD right now, but it may be close to going out of print. I only say that because when that happens, Amazon usually jacks the price up quite a bit. And the last I checked, the price for this on Amazon was pretty high uh, yeah. on disc. So something to keep in mind. Uh, but I was able to stream it. It's available on various streaming services as well. So it's not that hard to find. I mean, I, I recommend it. Give it another watch. It, it's a good one. Karen and I both think you should. You don't want to argue with a couple of Robert E. Howard fans. <laughs> <laughs> By the surfboard, I rule. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here's the other reason why Karen's been in my orbit, why or or on my radar, I guess is probably the best way to put it. A while back, I posted on uh, on Facebook that I was looking for a particular kind of story that I had just got done reading. A, I even forget what it was, but one of the novels and that I was reading it was about. Halloween and kids enjoying Halloween and, and movies and monsters and things like that. And she offered to send me a copy of her book, The Jack-O-Lantern Box. If you follow me on Facebook, just the other day I quoted part of it on uh, on there because there's this this book speaks to me, man. Oh. Uh, this, this book is so good. I'm sure a lot of it was autobiographical. <laughs> am, am I right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. But that lends to the authenticity of it. And it's about two girls, uh, two best friends in school. And then one of the girls has an older sister as well. And it's set in the, uh, I'm guessing like mid-70s is when it's yep. set. Yep, mid-70s, yeah. And it's taking place in the month of October. The jack-o'-lantern box is the box of Halloween decorations that one family stores all year round until it's time for Halloween. And one of the girls convinces their mother it's time to bring it down, who seems very resistant to bring it down because it's always too early. But you know, she finally succeeds and they get the jack-o'-lantern box down and all the decorations out. And everything that kind of goes into Halloween is, is here. Getting ready for trick-or-treating, doing Halloween stuff in school, trying to decide what you're going to wear as your costume, scaring yourself with local ghost stories and urban legends that may or may not be true. It's all here. And Granted, I wasn't a little girl in the 70s, you know, <laughs> enjoying Halloween, but I still found so much of myself in here, and I cannot recommend this book enough. It's really, really good. Karen, thank you so much for sending this to me. I've read it, and I adore it. Well, that's very nice to hear. In many ways, it was a very non-commercial project. It falls through a lot of cracks. It doesn't really fit a lot of things. I've never really been sure how to promote it, and it is very specific. But that was my intent in it, so I kind of basically wrote it for myself out of love because I really wanted to sort of preserve that sense. I had been thinking, I'd been talking with some friends about the Little House on the Prairie books, mm-hmm. yeah, and that weird, the weird time gap between when she, you know, she wrote them in the 30s and 40s, based on her growing up in the 1800s. And how how much times would have changed before she actually wrote it. And I was like, well, you know, growing up in the 70s is almost, almost that, but not quite technically, but in certain ways almost seems as far away as that. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking, well, I could do a little House on the Prairie book, <laughs> but about growing up in the 70s during the Charlie's Angels era, which seems weird. And then the more I thought about it, there is a lot about it that is kind of a bygone time. Mm-hmm. And once I hit on that as kind of a thought that I could just be very specific about what life was like for us at that time and how I felt about things at that time, then I had a hook to put on all the things I wanted to write about the stuff we did at Halloween when I was a kid. So you know, the characters aren't entirely autobiographical, you know, aren't entirely based totally on people, but the stuff that we did, the actual activities are totally based on fact. And my sister did, in fact, create Johnny the Hangman, who's one of these urban legends, totally off the cuff when I was a little girl. And my best friend and I did play this Johnny the Hangman game where we took turns being the killer and being Uh the victim for several Halloweens after that. So that was actually, and I've always thought, you know, that's a weird little detail that was fun. It's very nice to hear that someone who who didn't have the same experience, even though it is, because that was my my hope, is that people who loved Halloween would be able to see that in it. 
because yes, we are we are totally Halloween people here. Oh yeah, so. certainly. Now this episode that we're recording right now isn't going to go out until November, which means Halloween is coming and gone. But listeners, I know as monster kids, you love all things Halloween all year round. And I would yeah. recommend reading this book just to kind of hold on to that Halloween feeling a little bit longer, even though the trick-or-treaters are gone for the year. There's, there's just some magic in here. And the Johnny the Hangman stuff, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here, Karen. I actually went online and Googled that because I thought it, it felt so real. It felt like, okay, that's an urban legend that I probably should have known as a kid. So how cool is that? I mean, there's this this sense of realism, verisimilitude here. I don't review books here a lot on the show. Um, you know, as a writer myself, you know, I, I know what goes into creating and, and birthing this kind of stuff. But if I was to... If I didn't know you and I was just kind of talking about this book in a review sense, it just feels so real. The details really make the book. And I adore it. I like I, said, I, I can't gush enough about it, man. <laughs> I, I really love this book. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm going to get all verklempt. It is very special to me because you know, it was a strange time in history. And and it was a – I also wanted to write a little bit about that that weird period in time because – it was sort of post the big monster kid craze. Sure. And it was before the big horror boom on VHS. Mm -hmm. So we had such limited access to things. And I think it's hard for people now to remember even how limited our access was to things. And that's was, but that was true at the time that I was the age of the character in the book. We had by that point, like four TV channels. And that was amazing. We used to only have one because it was a small town, you weren't that close to any of the bigger cities. And so you really only could see horror movies around Halloween. Every once in a while, they would show a show on Saturday afternoons, and you could catch like Tarantula or something, and you'd get really lucky. But you just couldn't get this stuff. But then on the other hand, we had all this free, unsupervised free time. You know, we had tons of free time in which to do crazy things and to do imaginative things. So you had too much of one thing, not enough of another. And I feel sometimes the young people today, it's kind of, it's flipped. They have so much more access to things, but they have so much less free time. But I feel like, you know, there's a lot of them making the best out of that too and finding what works and finding pathways for their imagination. Sure. So things have changed, but it makes me hopeful for the future. But yeah, that, that was something that we were able to do where you had such limited access to things that you could still take what was there and make something out of it. So anyway, yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about Halloween actually is that we, we get to, you know, we had to create a lot of this stuff. I think I'm probably just a bit younger than you um, in terms of like when, probably, yeah. when you know, just a little bit, but you know, I also kind of went through a lot of that where, you know, we had to make a lot of our own costumes. We didn't have the big Halloween stores to go to like they do now. Right. You know, there might be one place that had some Halloween decorations and things up, but that was about it. You had to, you know, I, I have very distinct memories of pulling out the construction paper and drawing <laughs> skeletons on it with white, you know, with my uh, white uh, colored pencils and crayons. You know, I, I have very distinct memories of cutting out bats and, and snakes and things like that, which the characters in this book do. And it's just, it's like, man, I would have hung out with those girls, man, <laughs> as a kid. That's, that's you know. Um, the picture on the cover of the book. Oh, yes. Is that the decoration or, or the pumpkin with the cat inside that's referenced in the book? Yes. Um, I actually... Excellent. I had, to, I had to buy this one on eBay 
the one I had as a child disappeared. I have no idea what happened to it. But I found this on eBay, and I'm like, that is exactly what that cat was like. And you open it up, and yeah, the cat pops up out of the out of the pumpkin. It's a real prized possession. How how cool is that? How cool is that? I hope it didn't set you back too far because no, you know, reclaiming your childhood on eBay can be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of the other things that was a big inspiration, as it appears in the book, and I fictionalized. Mm-hmm. There was a company called Denison. Are you familiar with this? They made those uh, those paper Halloween decorations and costumes in the 1920s, okay. and they put out every year a little catalog of them called a bogey book, and you can buy facsimiles of them, and they were these beautiful illustrations. So it's one of those things, again, of like different generations having different ways of doing this. So like someone in the in the 70s looking back on the 20s, and now in the 20. We're looking back in the 70s. So it's just kind of that continuity of the chain of Halloween through the ages. So that was one of the inspirations for the book. You know, I'm looking right now uh, and... I mean, some of these Denison books, they go back to the 20s, like you said, which means they're in the public domain and people have scanned them and put them online. Oh, this is great. I love that retro Halloween vibe. These are awesome. Oh, some of them are just gorgeous. And I really don't know what the costumes would look like in real life, but the illustrations, the drawings are just beautiful. Very evocative. Yes. So I want to give a little shout out to the Denisons. Oh, these are great. Who apparently sold all sorts of paper decorations for all the different holidays. But I think Halloween had to have been a big one for them because these boogie books they did for several years. And most of their other decorations were just kind of like a general catalog with Thanksgiving and Easter and Christmas and all those things. So I was to say, I'm looking at the Halloween one, and there's like one page for Thanksgiving in the back. The rest of it's all Halloween stuff. And there's that cat design, man, that familiar scaredy cat face. Yep. Oh, that's oh man, this is awesome. Best podcasting ever. Where I'm sitting here looking at pictures <laughs> on the internet. This is great. <laughs> So it's available on Amazon. It's also available on Lulu. This was independently published. I'll make sure there's links to both places for people to pick this book up uh, for themselves. It, it's a, a quick read. I, I have read it once through all the way, and I, I started rereading it again uh, just because I wanted to be ready when I talked to Karen this time. Uh, just under 120 pages. Real short, breezy read, but man, it's fun. Thank you for sending it to me. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. I've been calling it, yes, it's a, it's a Halloween stocking stuffer. <laughs> It's very, it's yeah. small, it's light. It's, it is a quick read, but yeah, I do feel I'm I'm proud of it. Right on. Karen, I've loved chatting with you here on the show. This has been awesome to have a new voice to throw into the mix. I'm sure there are other movies that we can talk about. And, you know, if I can find a way to talk about Howard, you're going to be like <laughs> at the top of the list of people I call. Uh, I know Alan Trump and I usually find a way to bring up Robert E. Howard in a show just because we both love Howard. But you and I set the record for talking about it right at the top of the show, so. Awesome. Yes. So the award that you won for your blog, um, for the blog post over on an Underwood number five, I'll make sure there's a link to that. But you also have a website of your own, which is, it's referenced in the back of the book here, octoberzine.blogspot.com. Where I usually just kind of talk about random things, Marvel movies. I haven't been doing as much with it in the last few years as I should. But there is a, there's a whole archive of, uh, weird horror movie reviews, and a whole lot of stuff about Bollywood movies. So if you're interested in that, that's another of my strange sidelines. So. Wow. 
is, it, is that the best place to find you online these days? Is they go to the blog Probably. first? Probably. Yeah, yeah, there's links to various, okay. to different things. So it's some of my different projects. There's links there. And yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, again, I appreciate this quite a bit. Thank you so much. We'll have you back on the show down the line. And oh. I know this is going out after Halloween, but since it's before Halloween now, I hope you have a happy Halloween, Karen. Oh, you too. Yes. Well, it's been a real honor to be on the show. And uh, I hope everyone has a very Halloween year. So I realized that during the conversation with Karen, I mentioned that I quoted her book, The Jack-O-Lantern Box, on Facebook, but I didn't tell you guys and gals listening right now what that quote was. So I'm going to go ahead and read that to you right now. <clears throat> You're putting a lot of work into Halloween, she said. Jesse shrugged. It's like when we talked about how Santa Claus is really everybody, she said. We have to do the same thing to make it Halloween. I don't know what it is about those sentences, or what are they, like three sentences there, three, four sentences, but they hit me, and they hit me hard and make me realize that that's part of what I do. I mean, this speaks to me, except I do it all year round here on the podcast and just live in life because I can't give up my monster movies. Even if it's a movie like The Beach Girls and The Monster, man, I love this movie. It is so just... I don't know. The more you kind of look at it and peel back the layers, like Karen said, there's a lot here. The theme that she proposed that exists in this film, fascinating. And warrants another view, I think. Now, you can see this movie. I know I mentioned during the conversation that Amazon has this for an incredibly high price. In fact, as of this recording right now, you can get one of the standalone DVD releases of this film for $239.99. And while I would love for you to follow the link in the show notes to buy a copy of that for that amount, because I get a portion of that, I don't think you really should actually. So I also included some other links to Amazon where you can buy the movie from other DVD distributors. There is a copy of it you can get as a standalone for $12.99. And for some reason or other, there is a copy of it being released as a double feature with the movie The Incredible Petrified World. And even more odd, you can get it as part of a double feature with the 1983 film Prisoners of the Lost Universe, which happens to star Richard Hatch. It's a bizarre movie that I... Well, it's outside of the Monster Kid Radio purview, so I'm not going to talk about it here. However, because Karen mentioned Conan, I am going to play the trailer for Conan the Barbarian here in a second after I say thank you to Karen for being part of the show this week. Really appreciate it. Check out her website at octoberzine.blogspot.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Thanks again, Karen. <laughs> This is Jack Curtis, director of the film The Flesh Eaters. If you can't stand the sight of flesh being stripped from a human body, please leave the room. There will be a 10-second countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2... These things want flesh, any kind of flesh. 
And once they sense it, they lead their way through anything that comes between them and their meat. No one can escape the flesh eaters. Within the violent waters that cover this earth comes a mighty motion picture destined to be remembered above all others. Starring John Carradine as the scientist who was deceived by his own fantastic experiments. Craig, what happened? I think something's bubbling. This story of a group of scientists who penetrate the depths of a mysterious ocean brings you underwater thrills and breathtaking excitement as they travel mile after eerie mile through the black waters to ultimately discover the incredible petrified world. See women struggle for survival as they become lost in a world of incredible danger. Caverns explode violently as underground volcanoes unleash their tremendous fury. Suspense, chills, terror, excitement beyond compare. Never, never has a motion picture captured the amazing story, the gigantic spectacle, the staggering force of the incredible petrified world. So, our schedule is kind of messed up. <laughs> it's all your fault. No, it's not. Yes, it's it Halloween. It's your fault. Well, it's yeah. your Halloween stuff. <laughs> no, Halloween cannot be the fault. Halloween doesn't make mistakes. It's because you planned a trip the day after Halloween. I do not know what you were thinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, because of that, this is going to be an abbreviated feedback section because we're recording yes. early. Well, uh, we're recording early, but it's after midnight on, and we live in the second floor in a condo. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so keep it down. We're trying to keep quiet. <laughs> You're too loud. You're always so loud. <laughs> so, it is like that crunch part of Halloween. I had a thing on Saturday and. Mm -hmm. You had movies on Saturday. Yes. Fed a non-vegetarian dish. Very oh, sick. I don't want to think about that. I'm, okay. I'm not letting that impact the the experience. Yes. But if I remember the name of the Chinese slash Vietnamese place, I'm never going to go there. Well, I'm not going to go there anyway. But yeah. anyway. Yeah. It didn't ruin the day. Good. Didn't ruin the day. Good. Phantom of the Opera, live organ. So cool. Yeah. So cool. And then hanging out with Chris and Dominique and mm -hmm. talking about future plans regarding writing projects and such. Mm -hmm. And then went to go see The Mask, that movie, the Canadian monster movie, whatever. Okay. Mind-blowingly awesome. Yay! It was amazing. Uh, Dominique and I were talking afterwards, and we really, really want to talk to uh, Brian and Gwen about maybe getting that into the Lovecraft Film Festival next year. Because it's really good. Really good. good. So. You should stop moving around and making noise. 
Sorry. <laughs> I'll just mute it out on the recording. Right. So it's Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how was your party? Oh, good. It was uh, smaller this year, so more talking, more kind of laid back, which I prefer. Right on. So we did all that. Sorry. It's after midnight. midnight, I have to go to work tomorrow. (laughs) Um, I had to work today, but I had to try to make my, my contribution to the work snacks thing tonight because tomorrow night we're going to be playing board games with Dominique and I'm really excited about that. And Wednesday is when I have to bring my treats in. Total fail. Yeah. Total fail. Yeah. Man, I wish I could just opt out. It's such a stressful thing. But we have the Hammerhead Shark costume. I know, it's you so awesome. You cannot sick that day. You oh, no. opt out. I meant opting out of the snacks part. I'm too stressed out already, so I have to try to... Well, I'm not stressed. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Well, okay, so the snacks were shark teeth. Right. Bugles covered with chocolate and such, so mm-hmm. white chocolate to make them look like teeth. What happens if you go into work tomorrow and you send an email out to everybody saying that you found out that they are not gluten-free, which is true, they're not? Yeah, but I think the expectation would be find something else to bring. Is there anything else that we can just pick up pre-made? I mean, so we bought those brazi bites, and they're somewhat circular, and I was thinking maybe they're whale eyeballs. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Because the other thing is that my melting pot, it doesn't temper the chocolate. It's not going to look good on there. But the potential option we came up with, it doesn't matter if it doesn't look pretty because... Then you just douse them in powdered sugar. Which, you know, the bugles potentially have gluten. And we're covering oh, yeah. them with sugar, so neither one of us can eat them. Oh, t- <laughs> that's true. Can you test one for me? I, You know, I actually I had that one that you covered with white chocolate already, and it, I don't know. We'll talk, we'll talk more about it. But All right. Yeah, there's always a little bit of stress that comes with Halloween. There, there yeah. always is. Yeah. And by the time people hear this, the party will have come and gone at your work. So we can't even ask the listeners for advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, in the meantime, I'll be an awesome hammerhead shock. Oh, yeah. That hammerhead costume is amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Anyway. So, yeah, we've got all that. And we've got the virtual crash happening on Wednesday. Mm. So I'm trying to get everything done. By Tuesday night, because Wednesday is the crash, and then Thursday I fly out. Yes. So there's all of that. And Um, the packing. The packing. We did get our ballots done in Oregon. You can mail in your ballots, so if you can vote, please vote. Yes. Um, So, I mean, that's done, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot to get done. So I appreciate you taking the time to do an email. We're just going to do one. We only have one email sitting here. Yes. And it's an important one, and, and I'll tell you why after you read it. All right. Hi, Derek. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking about The Vampire Bat. I love this movie. It's my second favorite Dwight Fry performance. I think Herman is a wonderful character, and it is so nice to hear someone else speak well of a role that most people overlook. I also found it really funny that you and Brenda saw the remake of The Haunting on your first date. (laughs) 
(laughs) I now believe that great relationships are built from seeing a bad movie on the first date, though I don't hate this movie. Bob and I saw the ruins on our first date, so if a couple will go out again after seeing a bad movie, it must make a great relationship in the future. Feel better and we'll see you at Monster Bash from Melanie. So that's uh, Melanie, who is really good friends with the horror host Nurse Feratu, who works with Bob Tesla. Really good friends with her. Really good friends. Yay. Well, it's just nice to hear from a lady every once in a while. A woman. Well, I want to say Vampire Bat. Awesome. And I've been thinking a lot about that movie ever since I did the episode and then edited it. It's just a solid little movie. It is fantastic. It is dynamite. Yay. It's so cool. So, so cool. I feel like because it's late, I've said yay (laughs) many times. It's going to make for a good episode. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The Haunting. We finished The Haunting of Hill House. (gasps) Yeah. I'm going to agree with a lot of people online who have said that it did not stick the landing, the ending. I think so, too, the more I think about it. Like, I understand the landing. I mean, I get it. isn't the landing the show deserved. So, I think it's a lousy adaptation of The Haunting. We've already talked about yeah, that. I know, but you know, for some listeners. Really? Yeah, well, you know. You're rigid. You can't see outside of what it used to be. I'm so. a haunting hipster is what I'm okay. saying. Okay. <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> uh, I still think the one episode in the funeral home that only had like five camera cuts for the entire thing, cameras moving all over the place, was the pinnacle. Mm. Um, I, I just feel like it just kind of lost its way a little bit at the end and had to wrap up a few things pretty quickly. Yes, it did. Like, wrapping some things up was very quick. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think through, like, they're driving there. They show up at different time frames. It was almost like it tried to cram the time tricks that it's been using throughout Mm -hmm. for every single person into one episode. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I am glad that it ended. It was a definitive ending. There's not going to be a second season. It was a yeah. one and done deal, and I appreciate that. Can we talk about how random it is that she's haunted by the ghost of an affair? <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> it's so doesn't fit with anything else. That's true. Everything else is ghosts. Ghosts, like literal spirits of deceased people. Right. But this is just the spirit of a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> That keeps lifting his drink to her yes. as she walks by and sees Toasts her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I thought, like, maybe he, she wanted a relationship with him, but he died or something, like, weird. Yeah. Like it that, was but. Really bizarre. No, it was. It was just the spirit of a bad decision. Yeah. It's not like the one guy was haunted by. His wife, his estranged wife, or whatever, you know, it was all. I mean, and this is different from the sort of reprocessing that's happening while they're. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just under a spell. Yeah, this was just serious. Like, it's not. It's late, and I keep saying like. It was like, uh, like Like when they did this, like, uh, like thing, like, uh, yay, sleepy excitement. So um, Luke yeah. isn't haunted by, like, there I go again, isn't haunted by all the drugs he's taken. There aren't, like, there's not a drug dealer nodding his head at him every time he walks by. <laughs> She's the only one who's haunted by a terrible decision. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Oh, well. All right. I'm glad we watched it, though. Yes, but I feel as if we haven't seen the end of the show, that we have another episode to watch because that ending just didn't yeah. satisfy. I agree. I agree with you 100%. So I'm glad this is the email we're doing. Mm. Uh, on my computer, you're sitting at my computer right now. On yes. my computer, there is a Facebook. Will you go to that real quick? Sure. That just happened for Melanie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, monster kid parents. Yes. Oh. <laughs> what, what she? Uh, what's the name? I forgot. Oh, Guinevere. Guinevere. Yes. And I'm just imagining how pregnant she was when she wrote that email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was actually at Monster Bash, and well, they were pregnant, and they <laughs> made a point to go into the hotel room and make sure there's going to be room for a crib because they are not missing Monster Bash. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she was born today, actually, as of this recording. Let's see. So, 14 hours ago, checked into the hospital. Yep. Yeah. So, 12 hours ago, picture where she's trying to smile. And 11 <laughs> hours ago, baby. <laughs> well, congratulations yes. to Melanie and Bob. Congratulations. You guys are awesome. And I know you're going to steer this kid right when it comes to all things <laughs> monsters. Okay, can we talk about how the second comment I can see here is, she doesn't look like a lizard? <laughs> Good job not having a lizard, baby. <laughs> I want to end our feedback section on that. All right. Good job not having, having a lizard, a lizard baby. baby. <laughs> Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Chuck Award winner. The Monster of Piedras Blancas. The Monster of Piedras Blancas. The world's most shocking monster. Stalks its unsuspecting prey. Feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms. The screen's most nightmarish beast. A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean, turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, such... ...drawn by love to the forbidden cove of the sea monster, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. In the screen monsterama of a thousand incredible... See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. He's the go ghost you've ever met, this ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. He's got the hot rodders vavoomin and the hipcats zizoomin. Well, I'd like to think so. You know, she prefers hot rods instead of hot romances. That's because it's easier to handle cars. <laughs> this chick does all right with romance, too. Oh. 
But nothing stops this pirate's bird who learned his tricks from the ghost of Drag Strip Hollow. Anybody want to kiss a duck? It's a perfectly rational explanation for all this. <laughs> Cats and hot rodders, they're all alive to the jive. brings us to the end of the show this week. I think it's going to be a little bit shorter than the last few episodes have been. And part of that's because I worked so hard to get so many things done in October and wanted to really give you guys and gals a lot of classic horror material and content. And I was prepping for the virtual crash, which I think went off really, really well. Big thanks to Joseph Schultz for making the graphics that I used before some of the movies. That was really cool for him to do that. And thank you to everybody that joined us on Rabbit TV. I think it was a success, so much so that I'm going to be doing some virtual crashes or movie nights or open screenings or something down the line. I had a blast doing it, and I want to do it again. I think it's probably going to become a Halloween tradition, but I'm not going to wait till Halloween to do another screening like that. I'll keep you guys and gals posted. And of course, I'll mention it in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, where you can see this trailer. You are listening to the sound of a completely new screen experience. A startling new kind of excitement. As 20th Century Fox plunges you into the most incredible adventure that man could ever achieve. To make a motion picture that crosses a new frontier may seem impossible today. Outer space, the depths of the sea, the bowels of the earth, the past, the future, all have been subjects for the camera. But now, a film called Fantastic Voyage has broken through in an unexpected direction to create an adventure of astonishing suspense and beauty. One of the miracles of the universe. Its vital new story sweeps down from the sky. Then, it drops the bottom out of the world you know and understand as a beleaguered nation desperate for survival launches a journey you can never erase from your memory. We need you for security purposes, Mr. Grant. They know they failed to kill Banish. Security thinks they'll try again, first chance they get. A woman has no place on a mission I of this kind. I insist on taking my technician. You'll take along who I assign. Don't tell me who I'm going to work with. Four men and a beautiful girl, off on a fantastic voyage, actually entering inside the human body, exploring an unknown universe, unknown dangers. They're tightening. I can't breathe. 24 seconds left. After that, you're in danger of attack. Come on. It's sheer suicide for all of us. You are there with them, sharing a breakthrough in motion pictures. If you think
thought it was too late to discover something entirely new on the screen. Fantastic Voyage will be a stunning experience, for you are going where no man or camera has ventured before. When you come out, you may never look at yourself in the same way again. That's the trailer for the movie that we're going to be talking about next week on the show. Now, I'm not going to be home by the time that episode comes out, which I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it comes out on time next week. But I did get with Scott Morris a few weeks back and recorded about the film Fantastic Voyage, and I can't wait to share that conversation with you guys and gals. So stay tuned for that. Now, if you have any comments about Fantastic Voyage, the Beach Girls and the Monster, or anything else we've talked about here on the show, please feel free to call it in to 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and we do have a Patreon page. And I'm sorry, I know I'm behind. Last month, I did not do the Patreon patron roll call or update the website. I'll be doing that between this episode and next. My apologies, patrons who were expecting to hear your name. It'll be next week, I promise. One thing I don't want to forget, though, one thing that's already been set up and up and running is the Frankenstein poll that we're doing here on Monster Kid Radio. Steve Turek and I are running that. Go over to tinyurl.com slash frankpoll. You'll find a link to that in the show notes as well. We are asking you to tell us about your favorite Frankenstein movies, as well as the Frankenstein movies that you consider the best. The deadline for this is November 10th. So go fill that out. Watch the trailer for Fantastic Voyage. And remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Before I sign off, I do want to remind you that The Beach Girls and The Monster is almost like a Disney movie, except for the murders. Big thanks to the Undead Bureaucrats for letting us play their song More Fumes from the album Expedition Earth, theundeadbureaucrats.bandcamp.com, or follow the link in the show notes. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 